All right, everyone. Hello and welcome to the entry level left. I'm Jared, currently pouring one out for King Soleimani. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm Nathan. I'm in character, and by in character, I mean drunk right now. So <laughs> no, you're not. Quite feeling it. Yeah, and I'm Matt. Um, also drinking some of that Bacardi and Coke Zero, that Boomer Daddy Juice. Um, Put entry level left to get twenty percent off on your next <laughs> yeah. purchase. Input uh, at entry level left on your next Amazon purchase. Shout out to our sponsor, Daddy Bezos. <laughs> so yeah, just um, if you guys are tuning in for the first time, you guys and gals, uh, we are on all platforms pretty much. You can find us on Twitter, on Facebook at entry level left. We've got a Patreon. Uh, you can support us on PayPal if you'd rather do a single donation. Um, any anywhere you want to find us you can stream us download our podcast uh, all episodes for free um, we really want to provide this content to everyone uh, with no barrier uh, but if you like what we do please consider supporting us on either paypal or um, patreon but with that said let's get into it all right so tonight we are talking manufacturing consent specifically as it relates to the media, capitalism, all things war and imperialism. Y'all know the story. Yeah. I think so, at this point, our listeners should know you guys it's all yet? connected. Yes. So uh, <laughs> what, do, what do we mean by uh, manufacturing consent uh, in the media, and why is it relevant today? Well, I think we probably, probably uh, stole this term from uh, Noam Chomsky and our good, good friend Edward Herman. Herman? And by probably we Herman. mean we did. See, yeah. definitely I mean, did. it's definitely become part of the vernacular. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is like the, the if you want to take two or three hours to, to go through Noam Chomsky, you're going to hear Which a million different examples of, of how the U.S. does this. Yeah. But I think the most pertinent part of manufacturing consent is what they called the five filters of editorial bias. And I think these things are really, really important. So I want to take a minute just to go over a few of them. Um, so number one. Size, ownership, and profit orientation. So that means that the barrier to entry into any sort of media is huge, right? Like it's it's pretty obvious that the only type of people who get into media in the first place are usually giant companies, you know, right. like Turner Broadcasting or like News Corp and things like that, like Rupert Murdoch and stuff. Those are the only types of people yeah. who can just open up a media empire. You know, getting followers, having a creative team, having regular content, all that stuff you know, cost money. It takes time. Right. So it costs millions and millions of dollars to get in. So just the nature of getting into the business already kind of presents a bias because to have a news company means that it's owned by a billionaire. It means that right, it's right, in right. the interest <laughs> of a billionaire or of a millionaire. Right. Like you know the I mean? Washington Post is owned by Jeff Bezos. Right. But even even before that, it's like it takes some like massive like quote unquote like philanthropy effort to yeah. like get some major media off the ground. Yeah, and you're right too. It's like in addition, once those media companies are started, the only people who end up owning them are these giant conglomerates. Yeah, you know, like Disney bought Twenty uh, First Media Fox, yeah. which is pretty much all of Fox except for the news part right. or some fucking um, hedge fund. Or they yeah, have Disney ABC, bought ABC, ESPN, you know? Pixar, Miramax, Marvel. They own all of that. Yeah, which is like it means that every company is is at least filtered through a millionaire. Board right, of right, directors, right. yeah, you know what I mean. The second uh, point that they hit on in these like these five 
filters of editorial bias is the advertising license to do business. So what this means is that not only do you need some sort of like billionaire angel investor to get get off the ground, you also have to have some sort of business sponsor you. Right. You know what I mean? And this is what keeps the the independent media from being the big media, right? right. The big media has sponsorships from Keurig, they have sponsorships from like Starbucks and Abs, McDonald's and things yeah. like that. Yeah. But those companies will never go out of the way to sponsor something that's like more radical. Basically, any sort of dissent or anything. Yeah, you basically know? what it amounts to is like the ability to use capital to disseminate their product or their enterprise more than an independent media would. But just to give like a statistical like breakdown um, to people, as of at least 2011, uh, the media in the U.S. is controlled by about six companies with about 200 ultra-wealthy shareholders, and they own all of Western media. And, you know, the media in this country, in the U.S., is very consolidated. And as of 2011, it's never been as consolidated as it is. About, a, about 90% of what we read, watch, or listen to is owned entirely by six companies. And those companies are GE, uh, News Corp, Disney, Viacom, Time Warner, and CBS. And of those, of those six companies... You know, people may be familiar, but you have Comcast, NBC, Universal Pictures, Focus Features, Fox, Wall Street Journal, New York Post, ABC, ESPN, Pixar, Miramax, Marvel Studios, like we mentioned, with Disney, Viacom, has MTV, Nick Jr., BET, CMT, Paramount Pictures, Time Warner, uh, CNN, HBO, Time Warner, uh, Time and Warner Brothers, uh, CBS, uh, Showtime. Smith, uh, the Smithsonian Channel, the NFL.com, Jeopardy, and 60 Minutes. So a lot of what we're seeing, reading, and understanding that helps us orient our, our place in, the, in the, the universe, the country, a lot of it is coming from these six media giants. Yeah, yeah that's kind of playing like into the first point. Going back to the advertising too, I think like having ads is so important that when you get something that's really dissenting, like you see a lot of these these leftist podcasts or leftist YouTube channel, they don't get ads, like conventional right. ads. They get maybe like at best like dick pill ads right, or right, they right, get right. Like, gas station boner pills. Yeah, yeah, they get that or like my antimicrobial underwear and shit like that. They don't have like legitimate ads like the the big the big dogs do. You or know? they just run on Patreon. Yeah, and that, that's the other thing is most of, even if they do ads, most of the revenue comes from Patreon. So there's like a huge disadvantage just just with that point alone. Um, the third point they bring up in that, in that book in particular is sourcing mass media News. So what this means is that every single every single outlet needs to find a place to get their news from, right? And this in itself is a competition, right? So you want to have people in the government, people who are insiders, you know, billionaires, celebrities. You want to have those people in your back pocket ready to go at all times. And that means you have to appease them. You know, you have yeah. to keep them happy. That might mean writing like a fluff piece for them. It might mean like having a certain sort of like um, like air about your 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 content that kind of invites them onto the show. It might even just be things like I don't know, like running certain ads or certain kinds of um, of, of stories that they asked for on the side. Trump was like notorious for that. He used to work really closely with the tabloids, and he would give them a bunch of you know different scoops all in 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 trade for essentially them to write a fluff piece about how how rich he is or he has yeah, this to new get thing notoriety and to yeah. get exposure. Really, what it yeah. amounts to. You know, there's also a fear about what even legitimate news companies, I say quote square quotes over 
legitimate, right, right, you know. Right. Yeah. But like New York Times or Washington Post, they're the at New this York point. <laughs> yeah, they're at the point where you know they even sometimes get passes, like press passes, denied for the White House, or they get it denied for the the Trump campaign trail and things like that. Like at this point, like they need to fight for access. And so when it comes to these people who are like in the White House asking the president questions or asking the uh, press secretary questions, like you have to wonder, like are they are they throwing softballs because like they don't want to get kicked out, they don't want to cause a stir. You know what I mean? Uh, moving forward here, the fourth one is flack and enforcers, and I think this is one is is one that can we can all probably relate to. And a lot of times, media outlets get bullied into complacency by either like other outlets right. or by like uh, special interest groups, right? right? Of course. So that means when you see like any sort of bad take, or sometimes, God forbid, someone makes a mistake, you see like Fox News, for example, just bear down on how CNN is illegitimate or yeah. mm-hmm. New York Times is illegitimate, which like in some cases they are, but it, in most cases it's like it's a small mistake or it's something that's just being blown completely. Right. Or or you have like the actual State Department, like if they're, you know, doing like shit that exposes like failures abroad or like yeah. mismanagement of funds abroad or isn't like lining the fucking pavement for another war, you know, you can have literal intervention from the government. Yeah. 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 I think the important thing is, is like, when you hear the term like corporate journalism, it's kind of an oxymoron um, because if you think about an organization like the Washington Post, for example, that organization's sole purpose can't be to make money and then also be expected to tell the truth about things that may hurt the company financially or the corporation financially. It's just, you know, you start to see in real time that these things become a conflict of interest to them. You can see the media bias and the framing of these things quite clearly. And, and sometimes if you have enough money, you can just sue publications out of existence. Right, yeah. You know, like Peter Thiel got really upset that Gawker right. called him out for potentially, I'll say potentially here, so we don't get sued out of existence, right, 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 right. for being maybe gay. Maybe. Right, yeah. okay, large emphasis on maybe, guys. Like Pete Buttigieg, maybe gay. <laughs> he, might, he might be. I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> just he hasn't really commented on that yet. Um, but in any case, he backed Hulk Hogan's lawsuit, like funded the whole thing and pretty much got them sued out of existence. Not only them, but their editors, too, are like completely bankrupt. Right. You know, and it's just it's like it's it's very scary to think that an individual can just decide, like, hmm, I don't want this outlet to exist. Yeah. Right. You know, this one we're aware of because it's pretty well documented. But right. you have to think, like, how often does this happen on the down low? You right. know what I mean? And then the fifth one, and this one's a little bit more abstract, um, it started off in the original publication of Manufacturing Consent as uh, as anti-communism, right? So all the media was being filtered through an anti-communist lens, right? Later on, Chomsky changed this to uh, anti-terrorism, right? So everything had to be through an anti-terrorism lens, uh, like kind of post-1990s about in that era. Well, yeah, this book was revised like 20 years later Mm -hmm. after the fall of the Soviet Union to kind of like put things in perspective as the world had changed. I mean, that in and of in and of itself is kind of dubious the way that like Chomsky kind of like frames that. Yeah, but right. there's a lot of like context to it that needs what, to be understood. What I think like would probably describe it the best, and we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, right. was describing it as the big other, right? There always needs to be this sort of idea of like there's something else out there that's an existential crisis right, yeah. to our existence. Right. And the media needs to always acknowledge that, right? right. Even Not even just the media, even politicians need to, to acknowledge this. It's like just recently Elizabeth Warren had responded to Iran Right. She had or the Iran crisis. Right. Uh, you know, of course, Soleimani was Killing just killed Soleimani, yeah, not right. too long ago here. And so 
she uh, she responded by saying like, yes, okay, of course I acknowledge that they're terrorists. Of course I acknowledge that Americans were killed and this and this and this and that. And like before she can even get into her point of framing it, you know, before she can even get to the point of being anti-war or against this sort of intervention, she has to she has to admit first, right? Okay, uh, yeah, there, of course guy. there's a terrorist right. problem. Yeah. Of course there's a terrorist problem. You know, we can't deny that part. Of course there's terrorism problem. And right. at that point, it feels like you've already lost the battle. Well, you know what yeah, I mean? You're it, already admitting, like, yes, there is a terrorist problem. We already acknowledge that this big right. other is out there. It's an existential crisis. What are we going to do about it? And you've lost it before you've even made your point, right? You know? And it, it, yeah, because all you're doing is like kind of reemphasizing like the necess- the necessity for like war. And imperialism but now you're walking it back after that you know it kind of makes you come across as like weak quote unquote but also too it's like you know it's it's the same thing with the way we talk about war and like just the con- incessant like imperial death machine that the US produces it's like you if you're an American politician and you're actually against that you know you can't just outright state that you know you have to like first like embellish the troops and like talk about how much you love them and yeah, like worship yeah. everything that they do and have great respect for the u.s military and their bravery and then by the way like war sucks and like we shouldn't be doing this because if that you're lucky right. if that's what you get because if you don't do that then the media will paint you as like an ant you hate america you hate the troops and that's why you're anti-war yeah i think the particularly this last um content filter in terms of like editorial bias with the anti-communist uh slash terrorism sentiment it's particularly important in the in the way of uh it boiling down to this underlying feeling that the state and the media apparatus is always needing to find a big unknown boogeyman to create some sort of a united front and we'll talk about this later when we get into the way like the mechanics of manufacturing consent but for listeners that may be just tuning into our pod for the first time to give more of sort of like a background on like ma- like what manufacturing consent is is this idea where the media drums up these you know stories that may not be wholly false but they're postured in a way that kind of um they misrepresent the entire situation or they'll misrepresent historical context of the conflict especially we'll get into later with the iran and iraq conflict but they'll misrepresent specific details or situations with regards to these you know greater conflicts in the middle east and so on in order to drum up sort of a nationalistic or racist or you know big other so that the people in the united states low information voters low information people in general can sort of feel united in a in a whether it's a nationalistic or a racist way or you know an anti-muslim way to sort of manufacture this consent for war but we have to as leftists look at really what the mechanics of this are and who's profiting from this consent that the media is trying to drum up well also too i mean yeah they're essentially lying with facts i mean they're taking like they're taking things that may actually be happening on the ground, instability that may be happening on the ground, tidbits of information that are true and weaving them together to like kind of lay out a narrative that sounds believable enough for, as you had said, like the average American citizen to kind of say, yeah, I feel in my gut that, you know, that these are bad people. These are bad people. And that's right. But one thing I want to highlight 
I want to highlight a quote, actually, um, that kind of relates to something that we were talking about earlier. You know, Matt, when you were talking about how there's a there's a filter through th- which things must go, because if they don't sort of like align with the like elite status quo, then they're not something that would be publishable or acceptable, yeah. like in a mainstream news source. And this is a quote from Matt Taibbi, who's one of my favorite modern journalists, um, more progressive guy. He states, there's definitely a schism of opinion up above, though I try to avoid the term elites. The concept of manufacturing consent is that the conflicts we see in the media, say between Democrats and Republicans, for example, are not really conflicts. The conflict is all a show. What we see is the strip of acceptable thought to those up top. And what I think he's really getting at there is like, and actually it's something that Chomsky has said in an interview a long time ago because he was asked by a journalist who said, well, no one's told me what to say. No one's told me to ask you certain questions. No one's told me to frame things a certain way. No one's told me to have the beliefs that I have. And he says, I'm not saying someone told you that you have to have the beliefs that you have, but if you didn't have the beliefs that you have, you would not be sitting where you are currently. Yeah, right. And that's, that's kind of how it is. Like, it's not... It's not as easy to say as like, okay, you know, Jeff Bezos is dictating to his Washington Post employees that they need to report on certain things. It's not that they're outright lying about what's happening in Venezuela. I mean, they are. But like, it's not like they're just like conjuring shit up out of their ass about certain things. They're taking bits and pieces of truth, weaving it together with he said, she said, or sources you know yeah, unnamed yeah. sources which are always from the fucking US state department uh, about certain things and they're they're telling you a believable tale and the filter is really in terms of who is doing the storytelling because again what chomsky said it's not that they're being told how to think it's that they would not be where they are if they didn't think the way that the they way did that, yeah it's yeah sort like of, it, yeah. It's, i mean you can think about it like if jeff bezos is gonna go ahead and hire somebody to run his newspaper he's gonna have an interview with them and he's gonna make sure that his values align with that person and that person's gonna interview somebody and make sure their values align and that person's gonna interview an editor and yeah, that right. editor is gonna make sure that their values align and it works all the way down to the reporters well not you know? only that but like when you're think about like when you're being hired for a job they're always like whether their values or whether their objectives for your job you're being paid to do a certain like job and it's not so much the values of individuals being like trickled down to other individuals it's more like this overall enterprise exists for a specific reason. Right, right. Now, to be more specific for people that may be, you know, tuning in for the first time, again, this manufacturing consent is a concept we're talking about, um, you know, a greater concept described in the book by, you know, Edward S. Herman and Noam Chomsky called Manufacturing Consent, The Political Economy of Mass Media. But therein, they describe that the U.S. uh, mass communication media is basically an effective and powerful ideological institution that carries out a system-supportive propaganda function by reliance on market forces, internalized assumptions, which is very important, we'll come back to maybe later, but also self-censorship. So like Jared was talking about, they'll they'll leave out certain details to create a narrative but there's also a lot of internalized assumptions like take, for example, when September 11th happened 
and the U.S. media drummed up a bunch of support for war. And it was almost, you know, growing up in that era, it was almost unanimous. Everyone was united against this, like, ambiguous idea of terrorism. And we invaded Iraq, even though they had no connection to, you know, the the terrorist attack on 9-11. We invaded that country under false presumptions of weapons of mass destruction, so on and so forth. But there are internalized assumptions that developed in the American working class and generally the, you know, low information voters that terrorists are all Middle East, like all Middle Easterners are terrorists. All of these like internalized assumptions that the media has created help manufacture a sort of consent for imperialism, for war, for destruction, for suffering. But ultimately, you know, these this manufacturing of consent is a way to distract people from the profit motive behind going to war and manufacturing munitions, manufacturing bombs, uh, training soldiers, uh, recruiting soldiers into the U.S. military and so on and so forth. So it's important to understand that this is a whole apparatus in conjunction with things like the the carceral state that we've talked about in previous episodes in conjunction with the dysfunctional healthcare system that we have in, in the U S in conjunction with the dysfunctional education system that we have in the U S all of these factors go into creating, uh, with the media sort of a, uh, material condition that primes people to have these internalized assumptions. Yeah. Newspapers, like they're not strategically like, uh, posting articles to avoid panic, right? Like if panic sells, they're going to do it every single time. You know what yeah. I mean? And like, for example, like I was going through and sending you guys headlines from CNN earlier this week, and there was articles that were speculating about Iranian cyber attacks, mm-hmm. Iranian propaganda networks, which right. seems very similar to Russian propaganda networks. Um, Russian arms supplied in Iran. Uh, they were doing things like spotlighting American citizens who have been uh, locked up in Iran, and they were posting articles. Uh, one of my favorite headlines so far was, quote, every U.S. citizen is now a target, right? When you open the article, it's a little bit different. They're talking specifically about people who are in Iraq or Iran. Right, right, right. But at the same time, like, when you post these sensational headlines, right. like, you are asking for people they to know what buy they're doing. into this idea of, yeah. like, of like, oh no, this is like the panic. This is exactly, this is the big unknown. It's like, there's people out there who don't fundamentally don't agree with me. We need to go to war and make sure that they eventually at some point right. are going to be civilized. Or it's like you know? that meme where it's like, how did our freedoms get over here? Right. You know, yeah, how right, did yeah. our freedoms get, you know, hold up in the Middle East? And right. why do we have to go over there? I mean, like it really, realistically, it's like all oil infrastructure. Right. You know, one of the things kind of about all this manufacturing consent stuff, like doesn't make me entirely cynical, you know, about oddly enough about the American public is actually the rise of Trump. Right. Because, you know, as we've talked about, like how these articles are sort of crafted so that the average American citizen like believes them and whatnot. Trump is sort of a reaction to this like ongoing manufacturing consent of the media, right? Like who is his like number one scapegoat at his rallies, right? It's like yeah. the fake news, the media, and he's kind of playing the same game that the American media has mainstream media has played for so long as in lying with facts, where you take tidbits of true information and you kind of throw in a bunch of bullshit, and that's exactly what Trump does. I mean, he's perfected it. He's taken You know, he takes little tidbits of information that have a slight grain of truth to him, namely like how the American media is full of shit 
and you know bought off and you know quote unquote the swamp yeah and you know runs with it and targets them and it has drummed up this massive support of you know unfortunately because it's from the right just completely like anti-truth nonsense like imperial but, like war right. hawking yeah. right yeah basically. like any there i mean we're it's like as they say like i know it's a very wonky term but like a post-fact era one thing to your point i want to mention is like this idea when we're talking about like the conflict in iran that's now developed over the past like week or so with uh, uh general kasim uh soleimani I mean, you've hear you you've seen tabloids and newspapers all talking about how he was the number one bad guy, right? But if you look back a couple of years, like you see, you know, uh, Soleimani lauded in the media uh, just a few years earlier because he had been an indispensable figure in the fight against the Taliban and ISIS. So it's like clearly there's some framing that the media is doing here to be congruent with the U.S. State Department and their goals or their objectives, but it's not necessarily what you're getting is the truth. It's more of a contorted, um, it, it's like a manufactured consent for what is going on when the media tells you that this is the world's number one bad guy. But like you look back a few years ago and this guy was you know, helping the U.S. fight against the Taliban and ISIS and not only that, but like when he was taken out, he was on a diplomatic mission to in Iraq. And we've seen this shit before countless times throughout U.S. history, even recent U.S. history. I mean, in this case, it was Soleimani, who was once good. Now he's bad. Uh, before him, it was Saddam, who was once good, who then became bad. Before him, it was fucking Osama bin Laden, the Mujahideen, who was good. And then now they're bad. And where we kind of, because our militaristic style, you know, see our episode on imperialism as so much about like this opportunistic wielding of political power that, you know, today's good guy is tomorrow's number one enemy. And just to put this into hi historical context, I mean, I know the comparison's been made kind of a lot lately, but it can't be stated enough, honestly, in my opinion. I mean, let's talk about the Iraq war and like how similar this is. I mean... You had, during the time running up to the Iraq war, you had the entirety of the New York Times saying from anonymous sources, a.k.a. Dick Cheney and Donald's Rum Donald Rumsfeld, Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. We can't risk this. They were connecting dots that weren't there uh, between him and 9-11, just as Mike Pence did recently. I mean, you had you had you had Joe Scarborough, who's like supposed to be this like moderate liberal Republican on MSNBC saying that. You know, for six months now, George Bush, Dick Cheney, and Donald Rumsfeld have been telling the world that the people of Iraq need to be liberated from Saddam Hussein's bloody reign. The past three weeks have shown us just how right these three men have been, namely the three weeks running up to them, drumming yeah. up the fact that he had weapons of mass destruction. Fox News, of course, reiterating this. It's it's just like it's it's one right after the other. They play the exact same fucking shit like on repeat and somehow we continue to just abide and yeah. let it happen. Well, what, I'll, what I will say is like a, a particular um, quote or phrase that I heard on, um, I think it was Chapo that said it was, the empire has no permanent uh, friends, right. only permanent interests. Right. And the permanent interest is capital accumulation right. and resource dominance. You know, at any point in time, you know, Saddam, we let him go during the Persian Gulf War and then came it came back that he was 
you know, this person that needed to be taken out, the number one bad guy. Then it was Osama bin Laden. Now it's, you know, Kasim Soleimani. And it just, it, it really highlights how the U.S. imperial, like, media and the war machine in general, there's no permanent allies, only permanent objectives and permanent interests. And, you know, one thing, like, just to, to add on to that point, you know, in case anyone at home is confused. It's like, well, what does this have to do with capital or anything like that? Let us also not forget that even right now, like if you go to the gas pump, right, gas is cheaper than it was substantially from however many years ago when it was almost like four or five dollars a gallon. Let us not forget why that is the case. The Saudi Arabians are pumping a shit ton of oil on the market with U.S. support to destabilize three major oil producing economies iran russia and venezuela it is no surprise that shortly after that all three of those countries were hit with in addition to that incredible economic sanctions have thrown all of those fucking countries into turmoil it is at the same time that you've seen incessant drive for imperial efforts and war efforts against iran you know whether it's from the right or left in the u.s regarding russia and putin's connection to this that or the other venezuela has been an incessant boogeyman of the united states and the in south america and it's it's not coincidence these things are not coincidence and they're even, all deeply connected yeah, to one and it another. even came out recently that juan guado is actually bankrolled by the cia like right. this stuff is it's the varnish is coming off folks like we know that this is this is engineered. And at this point, it's just kind of ridiculous to believe these same lies that got us in these forever wars. If you look at the prophets of uh, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, and all these other war contractor companies, they're shooting up. Right. And it should come as no surprise that this is all engineered. This is all specific and it's all intentional. It's a market war. It's a class war. You know, this is so apparent now at this point, it's 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 kind of like, you know, ridiculous to even keep speculating about whether the, the U.S. is in the right or in the wrong. The intention of this media apparatus is to drum up this U.S. exceptionalism so that people in the U.S., low information voters, otherwise ignorant people can just rest on their laurels to say, oh, these are just bad people. These are terrorists. They need freedom. We need to liberate them, but look deeper and you'll see that it's all about oil infrastructure. It's all about resource dominance and power and control. And if you're wondering, too, like, why would, you know, a power like a major oil power like Saudi Arabia lower their prices to assist an American imperial effort or something like that? Keep in mind that. Them doing that also destabilized American fracking companies, which the U.S. was willing to take a hit on to benefit Saudi Arabian oil interests so long as it advanced American imperial interests for more fucking oil. So these things are all connected. They don't happen in a vacuum. It's not it's not conspiracy, although it may seem like it. But all of this, you know, has has a broader purpose. And even going back into like the historical context of our conflict with uh, Iran. Back in the 50s, Mohammed uh, Mossadegh was a figure that uh, was elected and he tried to nationalize the Iranian oil. And you can see if you look back in history and read about it, that the CIA 
overthrew their democratically elected government for the purposes of oil. So it's not like, you know, these people are just, you know, savages or whatever the media tries to paint them as like Islamic terrorists, whatever. There is a deep history an economic history as to why these these things are happening still in the current day. You can't just look at things as they're presented to you by the media without going back and trying to understand the rivalries and the the resentments that have developed as a result of U.S. imperial actions. And keep in mind, too, like Mossadegh was a secular socialist who, upon nationalizing oil, immediately the U.S. State Department drummed up this guy's close, you know, because of his socialist leanings and him nationalizing oil, he's he's close with the Soviets, and we can't have that. And they used the threat of world global communism as an excuse to topple a democratically elected leader, impose the Shah, which later led to the current leadership of the Ayatollah. Yeah, and whose fault is that? <laughs> that you are. Uh, <laughs> so with all of that said, let us now introduce a new entry-level left segment of Cursed Liberal Opinions. And Nathan, I'm interested who this week is your cursed liberal opinion. Well... Or what is your cursed liberal opinion? I, this week, for my cursed liberal opinion, I'm going to bring up a classical liberal opinion oh, from nice. okay. um <laughs> longtime and failed democrat Joe Lieberman. Whoa, right? Oh, Blast from the past. He wrote recently an op-ed oh, in the God, Wall Street Journal. Oh my god, I forgot Journal. who that even was. Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. sorry, yeah. continue. Yep. <laughs> For people who are listening, Joe Lieberman is the guy who essentially removed the public option right. from Obamacare, right? right? That was just a little bit too left for his his comfort. Yeah. So he made sure, of course, that was removed completely from Obamacare, right? He looks like that guy from uh, SpongeBob. Not the not not Mermaid Man. What's the other Barnacle Barnacle Boy? Barnacle boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You heard yeah. it here, folks. Yeah. Joe Lieberman looks like Barnacle Boy. Yeah. And he served in in the Senate, I think, from like 1989 ish to about 2013. So yeah. he has been. He's he sense, was he, he was a long time. Democratic yeah. senator. He's like he like was the original neolib before like neoliberalism had taken its lefter turn. But he recently wrote a an op ed for the very communist Wall Street Journal. Who <laughs> red scare? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip through this a little bit, right? But I'll I'll try Go to cover it. most of the, the the points here. Give us uh, the hits, baby. Let's uh let's let's leave with his hook here. President Trump's order to take out. Kasim Soleimani was morally, constitutionally, and strategically correct. It deserves more bipartisan support than the begrudging or negative reactions it has received thus far from fellow Democrats. Right. So AK, already, yeah. He's already starting off pretty yeah, hard here. He's hot. saying that, uh, yeah. you know, the, the general consensus of the Democrats, the people who are, you know, saying, hey, we should probably not escalate war. He's saying that's right. all fucking wrong. Hot centrist right? take. Is he going to be Buttigieg's running mate? I don't know. He might be. Maybe cool. Biden. That's you his know? VP. Yeah. Republic. Oh, he's not a Republican. He would he's totally be Biden's running mate. Oh my God. That's gonna. That's we. You pull heard it from, here. Pull you, heard, from you heard it here first, folks. Lieberman, aka Barnacle Boy, uh, will one hundred percent be Biden's running <laughs> so mate. So I think Biden from retirement. 
He goes on to say the president's decision was bold and unconventional. It's understandable that the political class should have questions about it, but it isn't understandable that all the questions are being raised by Democrats and all the praise is coming from Republicans. That divided response suggests that partisanship has infected and disabled so much of U.S. domestic policy that it also determines our elected leaders' responses to major foreign policy events and national security issues. Fucking God. Even the, ev- <laughs> even the killing of a man responsible for murdering hundreds of Americans. Hundreds and of Americans. To kill thousands wow. more. Hundreds of Americans. Yeah, it's not like we put ourselves over there in the first place. It's not place. like we killed yeah. hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians and fucking children and shit after invading yeah. on after a invading a sovereign sovereign nation yeah. on literal lies on literal lies after the saudis actually you know yeah literally the saudis did 9-11 you heard it here folks yeah ha- make that trend hashtag the saudis the did saudis 9-11 did 9-11 and we're supporting their despotic leader and yeah. supplying arms to them and other things like that right. so I- i'm just curious he says that partisanship is affecting our response i want to know what the the bipartisan response would be like because the the republicans want war the democrats are like we don't want the aesthetics of war i don't know how but you they can handed get, them a huge budget yeah for war. How, how can you get more how can you get any less partisan i mean i don't anyway <laughs> go ahead anyway yeah i don't want to bleed your ears out so right. i'm going to skip the part where he describes you know a history of bipartisanship during world war ii and oh my dealing God. with the nazis and he also talks a little yeah, bit about the last all good the, war we fought yeah he also talks a little bit about how like uh all the Soleimani war crimes that were committed etc cetera, etc cetera. so you can get that from some yeah. other source i'm not because black go water that. never happened and then he goes from the perspective of american values and interest it's impossible to mourn the death of such a man and democrats haven't i genuinely mourn the death of king Soleimani. literal response king Soleimani. thus far has been yes but adding worries that Soleimani's death will provoke a violent response from iran Democrats have also suggested that the Trump administration has no coherent strategy toward Iran or that Mr. Trump shouldn't have acted without notice or permission from Congress. And actually, I will say, I feel like he's a little bit right there. I feel like the liberal response is, huh, you killed Soleimani, but you didn't go okay, quite okay, through the right so channels. See, that's, you it, know? that's it. That's what I was just going to say. The, the nonpartisan response that he's looking for is... I would have liked everything that happened to definitely have happened. I just would have liked to have been notified about it, which I think is the Democrats position with the exception of like Sanders and Ilhan and AOC and all them. So again, again, let me go back to uh, Matt Taibbi's uh, uh, statement. Uh, There's definitely a schism of opinion up above, though I try to avoid the term elites. The concept of manufacturing consent is that of the conflicts we see in the media between Democrats and Republicans, for example. However, they are not really conflicts. The conflicts is all a show. What we see is the strip of acceptable thought to those up top. It's theater. There you fucking go, folks. There you fucking go. It's theater to set the expectation of what is acceptable, and it's all to frame and posture for the sake of mostly corporate interests so i mean all media in some sense is biased what you have to understand is you know whose narrative 
is mostly fabricated and which narrative is more based on facts than anything else. He goes on to say, if we allow fear of a self-declared enemy like Iran to dictate our actions, we will only encourage them to come after us and our allies more aggressively. Some Democrats have said that killing Soleimani will lead us to war with Iran. In fact, Soleimani and the Quds Force have been at war with the U.S. for years. It is more likely that his death will diminish the chances of a wider conflict because the demonstration of our willingness to kill him will give the Iranian leaders and probably uh, others like Kim Jong-un, got to include that, right, much to fear. Which I think is like is insane because they're like that sort of philosophy is literally just war justification. Right. It's like it's why insurgencies exist. It's why this like general idea of like America is imperialist exists in the first place. Like this is just self perpetuating that entire like narrative. Well, you know? also the people of Iran loved the fuck out of that guy. Um, millions of people poured into the streets. Yeah, to, more people than at Trump and Obama's right, inauguration. To mourn his death. Um, also, he's already been replaced by Soleimani's right-hand like guy, like his protege. So, uh, yeah, all we did was stomp on the fucking hornet's nest and kill the queen fucking bee and did nothing to quell the fact that we have enraged an entire population of people. All of this is is just drumming up more support for corporations. Also, too, the sanctions that we've imposed on them have only strengthened that leadership over there. They also now, like, have... I mean, they have no economic prosperity to look forward to. One of their leaders was just killed. They're ready to fucking die for the cause at this point. You know what I mean? Like, well, the the U.S. war machine, like their intent is not to win. Their intent is to prolong this conflict and protract it so that you know military contractors, military weapons manufacturers, Raytheon, Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin, what you know, all the other ones. Their stock prices are shooting up. It's so clear. It's beyond clear what this the point of this is. Also, too, Iran is literally like the Vietnam of the Middle East. Like, yeah. we would get spanked if we went over there. Like, I mean, not in the sense that, like, we wouldn't unleash, like, absolute indestructible, like, just... You know, we just bomb hell, the shit out of them, right? Right, but it, but yeah. I'm I mean, if we put boots on the ground over there, oh my god! So he goes on to say the claim by some Democrats that Mr. Trump has no authority to order this attack without congressional approval is constitutionally untenable and practically senseless. Authority to act quickly to eliminate a threat to the U.S. is inherent in the powers granted to the president by the Constitution. It defies common sense to argue that the president must notify Congress or begin a formal process of authorization before acting on an imminent threat. And just to say, it's like, this is exactly why we say do not argue law. Don't argue, like, policy with people. It's like, argue morals. Like, was it right for us to attack Iran? Like, don't sit there and, like, debate, like, Oh, like, well, hmm, did he have the authority to do it or not? It's like, that doesn't matter. Or like, just ask why did it, it happen? Or just ask why the fuck did it happen to begin with? What is the broader interest here? Yeah, he goes on to say, on many occasions, President Obama sensibly ordered drone strikes on dangerous terrorist leaders, including U.S.-born Anwar al-Awlaki. 
He did so without specific congressional authorization and without significant Democratic opposition. Which is true. Mr. Obama also brought justice, quote-unquote, to Osama bin Laden without prior explicit congressional approval. And this goes back to Again. what we always say. is like, so fucking what? Of course, we also right. agree. Obama is a war criminal. Right, like, right, right. We're not going to fucking argue So there. that's that's what's, yeah. that's what's funny is because he's like, this isn't about partisanship, but like, let me give you this like very specific like partisanship against Democrats like doing the exact same thing. And it's like, if you were actually like this quote unquote independent, you would be like, hey, both of these sides have committed like a fucking war crime. Like, but that's obviously not the case because Joe no, Lieberlin is a fucking nutsack. <laughs> well, with let's legs. just admit like opinion sells. It's provocative. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Course. It's, you know, that's the thing about uh, op-eds and editorials. It's like, you know, at some point you have to realize the intersection of capital and what sells is fucking opinion and provocativeness. Right. Yeah. Um, he goes on to say, it is possible that anti-Trump partisanship isn't behind Democrats' reluctance to say that they're glad Soleimani is dead. It may be that today's Democratic Party simply doesn't believe in the use of force against America's enemies in the world. I don't believe that's true, but episodes like this one may lead many Americans to wonder whether it is true or not. If enough voters decide that Democrats can't be trusted to keep America safe, Mr. Trump won't have much trouble winning a second term in November. That's one more reason Democrats should leave partisan politics at the water's edge and whatever their opinion of President Trump on other matters may be, stand together against Iran and dangerous leaders like Qasem Soleimani. Let me tell you something. Joe <laughs> Lieberman will will and did 150 million percent vote for Trump. Again, <clears throat> it's like they're they're like presupposing the big other. You know what I mean? They're right. like saying like, no, there is a threat. There always has to be a threat. This is the threat. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's that's their entire ideology. He cannot step out of that. That's what right. his belief is. Even as a liberal, you know, right. a long-term liberal, as a Democrat, that's what his belief is, is that like there is a big other out there. There is an Iran. There's an Iraq. There's like right. something out there that we need to be taking care of, a threat to our existence, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's fucked, folks. So, um... Well, I also have a cursed liberal opinion for you all. Um, this one comes hot off the press from Twitter. Got a shit ton of retweets and likes. Um, and it states, in relation to the current conflict uh, going on with Iran right now, toxic masculinity is putting the entire world at risk. <laughs> and he goes on. This whole situation is one of weak men needlessly escalating situations to look tough and refusing to back down even when countless lives depend on it. Donald Trump is the poster boy of this approach, as if if we had elected Hillary, we would not already be at war with yeah, Iran see, and Russia. I'm not done. I'm not done. Hold on. <clears throat> Just <laughs> admit you fucked up. Apologize for carrying out an assassination and call on Congress to pass legislation to stop any president from putting us in this situation again. Yeah, because that's what Trump would do. Have the courage to de-escalate the situation and prevent it from continuing to happen. Well, I just want to say to that in response, this is totally like id poll liberal nonsense. Yes, total shit. Obviously. But the thing is, is like, this is what distracts people from understanding that there's like a class dynamic, like more than anything else, whether like or not, this is 
you know, toxic masculinity that causes Trump to do this stuff or that causes the U.S. government to do this type of stuff. It's less important than the material drives to wage war, to wage imperialism, to manufacture munitions and and uh, weaponry, like more than the toxic masculinity involved. And I'm sure there is some, you know, the patriarchy and all that right, stuff, yeah. all these, you know, uh, you know, warlike drives to do these things. But but the at the helm of it all is the profit motive. And this is the thing that makes, you know, this this kind of a take so nebulous and boring, really. It's just there's no bite to it. It's like, okay, basically you could have just summarized that article by saying orange man bad. Right, right, right. right. right yeah. Well, and I mean, I think like like I don't want to be I mean, don't get me wrong. This is an absolutely cursed opinion. Uh I don't I don't want to be disingenuous. I mean, this person did also go on to like blame what they said like they said like the economic system they didn't name the economic system but blame <laughs> the economic system although they didn't name it for contributing to potential war with iran but like like to me this is exactly why the right is winning um i mean this take is fucking horrendous and i feel like acts you know as if someone like say again like i said earlier like if hillary was president you know, like we wouldn't already be at war Everything with Iran or fine. Russia. Liberals or, would not be complaining. Right, Liberals but, would be like, oh, yes, yeah, slay queen. But I mean, I kill mean, those Iraqis right, right, and those right, Iranians. Right. right. And I think it just shows the failure, you know, of of like liberalism or even liberalism that has like infected the left currently to adopt like this rad lib cultural leftism with absolutely zero class analysis and I think it just shows, like, you know, the failure of liberalism and, like, the left that it's kind of, like, infiltrated, you know, which has largely adopted this sort of, like, rad-lib cultural leftism that has absolutely zero class analysis that would equip it to be able to deduce the central aim of imperialism or, you know, as we've said in previous episodes, the highest stage of capitalism, as a famous Russian activist once said. Um, and they can just deduce that so easily to fucking toxic masculinity because all elements of like class analysis have been completely stripped from from their arguments like as a whole. I think that's it for our cursed liberal opinions. So do we have a literal king? Yeah, yeah. we're going to spotlight yeah, someone yeah, this yeah. week. So for this segment, you know, we're moving to a literal king of the week. Um, and you know, I got to give it to my boy, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, leader of, uh, the revolutionary Hezbollah. No, I'm just kidding. It's not Hezbollah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh man, where's no, this going? No, 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 Off script no. A satirical, bit. <laughs> satirical purposes only. Satirical purposes only. Um, but you know, no, I'm actually going to give it to, uh, Mike Preisner of, uh, Party for Socialism and Liberation. Shout out to them. Um, he's an Iraq uh, war veteran and major U.S. anti-war activist. I'm sure if you're on left Twitter, left Facebook, whatever, you've seen some of his like videos that have gone viral. Yeah. Um, active communist um, and, again, PSL member. Um, and he just stated this in combating media and kind of political narratives regarding the justification of Soleimani's killing, stating that, People blaming Soleimani for hundreds of American deaths are referring to when the U.S. illegally invaded and occupied Iraq and was unleashing daily brutal violence on civilians and the Iraqi people. 
desperately sought support to justifiably and legitimately defend themselves in their homes. I say this as someone who, while in Iraq, probably had Iranian munitions shot at me, so spare me the quote-unquote great disservice I'm doing to our soldiers. Beautiful just take. Abs- just, get better. just absolute king. Just absolute boss. I mean, I mean God, that's, that's yeah. it. Just that's put it. it out there, you know? Like, we are illegally invaded and occupied their country, and as much as the U.S. war machine and media apparatus wants to drum up, like, that these people are terrorists or bad people, like... This is all for the pursuit of profit. Like, yeah. don't get it twisted. Like, this is all profit motive. And there you go. That's a soldier who admits that. Right. That's someone who was there. That's like, yes, that's this, this is someone. Is what it this was. is someone who like literally became a communist after serving in Iraq. Yeah. Like he was like yeah. he was like a right wing like let me serve my country post 9-11 type kid and then came back from the war and was like literally bring the war home. I mean, and obviously we don't want to do like an appeal to authority fallacy here, but like this means something that this person experienced this, had this recollection and acknowledged that we're illegally occupying this country and doing a lot of things that are really not necessary, but look at, look at whose pockets it's lining. Really? That's the point. That we're trying to get across here. Yeah. The main point of this show is that if you want to have a good opinion, you have to go join the military and kill some brown and innocent kids. Yeah, I don't know if I... <laughs> plug, plug in, plug in, plug Pete, in. Plug in Pete Buttigieg's campaign Pete Buttigieg. ad. Yeah, let's yeah. get the LGBTQ <laughs> CIA, CIA plus, plus yeah. opinion on this matter. Yeah, that'll be our next segment. Um, No, but uh, anyway, yeah, that's that's my literal king. Uh, Just absolutely fire take, so... Um, Congrats! He's a Tampa yeah. local too. Did you know is that? he really? Yeah, he's. They're from around here. Uh, yeah, I remember whole... he was there, like in the 2012 Occupy Wall Street, like or the RNC, the RNC protest. Sorry, not Occupy. Anyway, uh, moving on to our final segment, having a normal one. Um, I actually have one from the Washington Post. And it's not an opinion piece, folks. <laughs> oh God, it's real news. It's hot, it's legitimate it's, news. It's hot off the press. It's coming from for, the editorial yeah, board. For people that may be wondering why we're doing these segments is because I think it's particularly important to like point out with direct evidence of media pieces and editorials and things like that to describe just the absurdity of the right. media. These apparatus. things are out there. Like we're not just making right, them up. Right, 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 right. We're not. We're not here to talk about it just to talk about it. Like we, here, here it is. Here's a concrete example. Anyway. This is the Washington Post editorial board having an absolute normal one. <laughs> uh, this statement. Oh, and I love it, too, because it says at the top, the Washington Post, democracy dies in darkness. Yeah. Um, anyway, title of the piece, Maduro's latest ploy failed, but it's a bad sign. He's hunkering down with Putin's help. <laughs> oh, get ready, folks. <laughs> Strap in. Strap in. Um, anyway, so I'll, I'll read through this quickly. Uh, an attempt by Venezuelan ruler Nicolas Maduro to strip his opposition of <laughs> ruler. Contr- yeah. He was democratically elected. Yeah, no, no, no. Anytime you hear ruler or regime, that's it's U.S. Bullshit. That's U.S. code for uh, yeah, yeah. We, we don't we like fucking you hate this person because you're yeah. trying to nationalize the oil and right, keep right. the wealth of your country. Yep. owned by the people who live there rather than U.S. Right, corporations. Right. I've never heard fucking whatever his name is in Saudi Arabia as a regime. Anyway. An attempt by Venezuelan ruler Nicolas Maduro to strip his opposition of control over the National Assembly through force and fraud mostly fell flat this week. Dozens of countries, including Latin American governments sympathetic to the Maduro regime, he 
none of which are listed, rejected the supposed election of a formerly obscure legislature as assembly president Sunday after opposition delegates were forcibly excluded. Meanwhile, a hundred of the 167 members, false numbers, gathered at a newspaper office, they don't name which one because it's El Nacional, an extreme right-wing newspaper in Venezuela, and re-elected opposition leader Juan Guaido. On Tuesday, the opposition majority regained control of the assembly chamber and swore in Mr. Guaido as president, even as the regime's nominee fled. Just skipping forward a little bit uh, in this article, states, A year ago, when the Trump administration joined other governments in recognizing Mr. Guaido as president and then suspended U.S. purchases of Venezuelan oil, hmm... Hmm. I wonder what this is hmm. all about. It appeared the regime might soon collapse, but after weathering a failed uprising launched by Mr. Guaido in April, the regime quieted the streets with brutal oppression. Ah, yes, because basically Guaido could not gain any mass popular support. Uh, also, his fucking uh, National Assembly members or sympathetic members were fucking burning aid from the fucking UN that were coming in there, which the mm. U- which the New York Times, the failing New York Times, had to walk back their stories originally that they had reported that the Maduro regime had done. Um, anyway, so Mr. Guaido in April, the regime quieted down the streets, brutal repression. Uh, it partly stabilized the economy by abandoning its price import controls and allowing the dollar to become a substitute currency. It repeated revenues from drug trafficking and gold mining, including by Colombian guerrilla groups. So you heard it, you heard it here, folks. Uh, they since they can't make any money off oil anymore, um, the Maduro regime has uh, switched to drug trafficking and gold mining from Colombian guerrilla groups. Uh, maybe they wouldn't have to do that if you would not fucking sanction a democratically elected government. Uh, so I mean, this article, like, I've heard enough personally, <laughs> but I just want to say, like, all like it. it any reasonable person who understands the the history of the Bolivarian Revolution in in Venezuela or understands the way that their econo- uh, economy is set up understands that you know this is kind of like framing and posturing by the U.S. media to represent the Venezuelan government or the Maduro quote unquote regime as some type of like enemy or other, as we discussed in the editorial bias and filtering earlier, but, but really like what they're obscuring here is the deep historical context of the problem. Now the sanctions and all of this stuff, this article talks about it very little, you know what I mean? And it's almost framed post hoc as you know, um, you know, anti Maduro and all of this stuff, but they're giving you a very, very curated, purposeful misdirection when they're talking about, you know, th- these objectives here. So I know you feel like you've heard enough. Let me just say <laughs> this has all been vanilla shit. So <laughs> let me, let me cut, let me cut forward. Let me fast forward a little bit. Okay. Elliot Abrams, the State Department's oh my God. <laughs> Elliot Abrams, the State Department's special envoy for Venezuela, said Monday that Russian companies are now handling 70% of Venezuelan oil. They market it, they finance it, they hide it, ship it to transfers, changing the name of boats and turning off transponders, because we totally don't do that with Saudi Arabian so, oil. So I mean, here's the the scoop here. 
Um, the U.S. media basically decides what the uh, imperial interests or the capital interests of the U.S. are, and then they frame and posture the narrative to seem as if everyone else, Russia, China, Maduro, are all at odds with the U.S., but it's quite clear to see that it's really just, you know, it's really just like a market war for resource dominance. And let me let me just get to the final paragraph of this this piece. It's it's truly golden. The regime of Vladimir Putin will be rewarded with a new client state in the Western Hemisphere, along with nearly exclusive access to some of the world's largest oil reserves. This would be a stinging defeat for President Trump, who has made the restoration of democracy in Venezuela one of his signature goals. Yeah, by instituting like a CIA coup uh, with someone, Guaido, who was not elected, who was not even in the race for the presidency versus Maduro, who was democratically elected by popular vote, which arguably their electoral system is more democratic than the U.S. electoral system because they don't have things like electoral college and uh, different things voter like suppression voter law. suppression and uh, incongruent or inconsistent representation based on population size. So these are facts that they conveniently um, don't put in. And so you're framed to see the narrative as a Russia and China and Maduro versus U.S. free market right. forces. Yeah. But it's not that. These articles are written in a way where it's like, we're going to complain right now about Venezuela, but... Just ignore all the hypocrisies that the U.S. Right. might have in this situation. We're just focusing on this. And that's what, like, that's the downside is that, like, these articles are only written with, like, oh, here's the bad guy in mind. Right. They're not written with, like, hmm, has the U.S. done anything comparable in the, in the, in the past? Right, exactly. And, the, and, and then the fact that they call it, like, Venezuela oil trafficking. Right. Like, they're, <laughs> like they're depriving the U.S. of something yeah. But the U.S. is literally do like the U.S. is responsible right. for all of these problems and this this economic situation. But, but it's like when Venezuela engages in trade with Russia to literally keep its economy afloat. Yeah, it's trafficking. It's trafficking. When, it, when it, the it's U.S. A, it's invades, a regime. It's a regime yeah, with a ruler the, who's trafficking. Yeah, but when the U.S. Ir, it literally invades a sovereign nation of Iraq and occupies them for literally ever for right. the sake of oil infrastructure, that's not trafficking or, or, or a cartel or, at all. Or engages with a country that dismembered a fucking Washington Post or whatever Wall Street Journal. Is Washington Post journalist? Like, yeah, abroad. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They, they, they fucking... This is the editorial board saying this after one of their fucking members abroad was cut to pieces by... Uh, this fucking insane dictatorship in That's Saudi you- Arabia that we cannot, that also did 9 11, that we cannot speak about because of their fucking connections with the US. That it's we're so, allied with. It's so that fucking. That we give resources it, to. It's yeah. so disgusting. But anyway, let me just finish this last piece. Again, this would be a stinging defeat for President Trump, who has made the rest of me- restoration of democracy in Venezuela one of his signature goals. How to prevent such a defeat? Military action, which Mr. Trump, okay. which Mr. Trump has sometimes hinted at, it's not a realistic option. But Mr. Trump could impose a cost on Russia for its meddling, such as listen, guys, hold on, 
Such as by increasing sanctions on the state oil company, Rosneft, for its Venezuelan oil trafficking. Yikes. The coming months may tell. (laughs) Hold on, guys. You ready? It's about to get real woke. It's about to get real woke. The coming months may tell whether Mr. Trump values regime change in Venezuela more than his affinity for Mr. Putin. Oh, Oh, wow. (laughs) Oh, my God. Cursed. That's like ultimate. A, that's cursed. Like a, cursed. That's, that's cursed. It's, Opinion. It's, it's, it's having a normal, normal one. one. <laughs> yeah. Jesus yeah. Christ. Every, ah. Everything is just like a, a simplified narrative of good guy versus bad guy. America's the greatest. We've never done anything wrong. Every action we've taken is justified. You know, and we're the, we're the rightful police force for the world. Do you buy it? I don't. <laughs> it's yeah. disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting. like it's like it's so funny because they're like basically hinting at at the end that if Trump doesn't escalate tensions with Russia, then he's a a Putin bot. You yeah. Know? So this is what manufacturing consent does. Like this is the point is to basically tell you, oh, you're anti-war. You're just unpatriotic. This is what they did during the Iraq invasion. This is what they're doing again. And it's all the it's all the media apparatus. The Washington Post wasn't the only one this week who was having a very, very normal, normal one. one. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, Military.com published an article oh, this God. week. <laughs> oh, God. That said... Wow. What a <laughs> source. Just, Military.com. I'll just, let's, just, <laughs> let's just quote the title first here. Iran may have a fleet of communist killer dolphins. Okay, first of all, enlist them immediately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bring them on the pod. They found us out. Yo, we need to have those communist dolphins on the pod. Yes. Okay. Friend of the pod, communist dolphin. (laughs) I'm going to preface this. I have no idea where this fits into like the filters of media. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't know if they're just appealing to like certain buzzwords. I don't know if this is like actual propaganda. But it exists. Think of the type of right winger that would click (laughs) on this article and just like have a field day. (laughs) So they they live in Clearwater, Florida. Yeah. So I'm going to skip around. I've cut cut this down a little bit. (laughs) So in 2000, the Islamic Republic acquired a number of dolphins from Russia, one specially trained to attack enemy ships, according to the BBC. (laughs) The dolphins had originally been trained by... The Soviet Union. Yes. Listen, listen, that hasn't existed for like 30 plus years. The international working class will be the human race of dolphins. (laughs) When funding for the project ran out, the dolphins were acquired by their former trainer who moved them to a dolphin, dolphin, dolphinarium, uh, which I think is a place where you fuck dolphins. Sick. Thing. Dolphins do like to fuck Don't people. Don't quote me on that. I, I've seen that. Let's yeah, not, the dolphin rape let's thing. Let's not anyway. get on, on the <laughs> <laughs> So public interest in this dolphin area waned, and their caretaker was forced to sell them when he eventually ran out of food. Right. So in 1991, <laughs> after the fall of the Soviet Union, the dolphin unit was sent. <laughs> the dolphin <laughs> unit. <laughs> the dolphin. SVU. <laughs> special. <laughs> what is it? Uh, SDU. Special dolphin unit. unit. The the dolphin Dun-dun. unit was sent Dun-dun. to the Crimean <laughs> Crimea. That's a that's a Crimea. Crimea 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 Peninsula River. 
from a base in the Russian Pacific area. <laughs> Comrade <They're>... Flipper. <laughs> Comrade Flipper. There, the dolphins were trained to kill enemy frogmen using harpoons mounted on their backs. Were these gay frogmen? <laughs> yes. A la Alex Jones. <laughs> yeah. They would also swim in enemy ships in suicide attacks while carrying explosive sea mines as they were able to d- d- uh, they as they were able to distinguish between Russian and American submarines by the sounds their propulsion systems make underwater. I sure. want to meet these dolphins yeah. heroes. Yeah, which it it makes uh them more discerning than the US drone strikes that seem to favor innocent brown kids over actual terrorists. Oh my god. That's that's my little editorial <laughs> note. Oh, that's, no, your, god. that's your uh, that's, <laughs> that's your artistic I was like, damn, hot take for military.com. So anyway, these highly trained killer dolphins were moved from the Black Sea to the Persian Gulf after Iran purchased them. For reasons unknown, according to the Russian newspaper, Zurid, who is the dolphin trainer's, uh, his work, which supposedly continued in Iran after the 2000 sale, was solely of a military nature. Depending on the types of dolphins used by Zurid, the original animals could still be alive, as dolphins have a lifespan of 50 years or more, he could also have trained more killer dolphins for use against Western shipping. Honestly, oh God, Western I think shipping, it's at stake here. Like the liberal, like it's almost like a the liberal psyche is like a an ad lib thing. It's at this point, it's just like everything is replaceable by the word Trump or Putin <laughs> or you know whatever Russian hacker. It's just nonsense. While the United States protested the sale of arms, or in this case, killer dolphins, to Iran, Zurid cared only about the dolphins. Quote, I am prepared to go to Allah, or even to the devil, as long as my animals will be okay there, he said. Which, like, just to wrap it up in a, on a more serious note there, is that, like, it feels like that last paragraph that I read off here was solely just a show, like, are these people unreasonable? Are they yeah. selling weapons to Iran, like to this for this Allah, so that they can s- totally fucking have their animals survive over the cost of American human lives? You know, it's like it's just I don't feel like this article is written in complete malice, but I feel like it was written with the idea of like Iran. Oh, that's trending right now. Oh, communism. Oh, that's always trending. Let's make sure we can get all these buzzwords into one thing. You know, it's clickbait. There's no doubt. But at the same time, it gets you you in the the sort of in the motion of thinking like, wow, these crazy Iranians, these these crazy Arab people over there. Well, it's like the whole thing where they're like, I mean, that's even historical. It's like, oh, Stalin was trying to create like a fucking ape army to, you know, like kill Americans and shit. It's like okay, it doesn't surprise me that now we're talking about dolphins or whatever. It's all fucking cool, honestly, and I want to meet all of them and, and <laughs> engage all of them and make them a part of the great proletarian revolution. What I'd be think honored is, to get harpooned by yeah, one of those dolphins. Yeah. <laughs> what I think is really That'd interesting about that actually. particular article, though, is like we talk about like liberals always talk about like sources and like legitimacy and authority of sources but it's just like a, that article in particular is sort of a testament to how like absurd and bullshit media is in general that someone can just write an article like that with no substantive information and just publish it because they have the means to do right, so. Right. But it, it kind of throws in a wrench in this idea of like authorship and, and, and authority in terms of media like – if you're going to give uh, if you're going to lend credence to or suppose that some particular outlet is an authority 
you know, and not question their, you know, profit motive or the way that they're selling this information or marketing this information, I really don't think that you're doing your due diligence to try to understand the full scope of the apparatus and the, the, the interests at play that shape the world that we live in. Yeah, when you read the article, like it, it feels like it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's a little bit speculative. He's kind of open about like, maybe this is a thing, maybe this isn't. But at the same time, it just makes you feel like, why do they have to get this narrative in? Like, who is setting this quota where it's like, you need to talk about Iran this week, so make sure right. you write an article. And he feels the need to write something like this. It's you know? basically like Neo-McCarthyism. Right. Honestly, honestly that's why I found it so funny, and I feel like we all have like a humorous time in our fucking group chat or whatever about the MEK and like yeah. they're like <laughs> literally like they're like a 2009 Glenn Beck like Wet conspiracy yeah. rant but they're all supported by the far right I mean they are extremely reactionary like yeah. now but like but I mean, how do you break this down there is literally a a are they communist Marxist they're an Islamist, Islamist Marxist, Marxist group group and guess who they're funded by right the Bushes and now right. maybe possibly Probably the Trumps. Right, right, right. It's like, how how could you have any more of a self-contradictory worldview than to be supporting Islamic Marxists in their ability to overthrow Iran? Like, how, how more honestly, asinine can it get? Honestly, folks... It's, it's just like they're it telling me on, on. themselves. Uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a good place to be. I think on so. that note we should <laughs> we should end this. Dump yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, before we end it, just going around, why is everyone sipping that daddy juice this week? Well, politically, why I'm drinking? Politically speaking, honestly, this work week was hard, and I'm tired, and I want to get loose. Hell yeah, straight up. Yeah, damn. I mean. At this point, news just travels so fast. There's no time to get caught up. Right. You know, we get a few moments a day, and it's like it's so stressful to to, to deal with all this shit. Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm becoming like what else more, are you gonna do on a Friday night? Besides more and more like nihilistic. Some, yeah. About it. Yeah. You know, like it's just like we see the just absurdity and disgusting behavior of the media outlets and how they drum up support for war, manufacture consent, and it's just kind of makes you want to just like end it all sometimes. Yeah, I think that for me it's the fact that I mean obviously Soleimani was killed. That was brutal. Um potential war with Iran, sure. But honestly, yeah, it's kind of the the shitty media coverage mainly because there really is no there is no way to spin this to advocate it. You know what I mean? Like it's like at least in 2003 with the Iraq war like they weaponize like Americans like you know hatred of fucking Muslims basically and not being able to tell the difference between any any Muslim country from the other to drum up like hatred and conspiracy with Saddam Hussein. Well, I mean most Americans can't even find Iran on a map. Right, right, right. But it's like now it's like it's so like so many people are so anti-war. We're all over it. This killing happens we're probably going to end up in some major conflict with Iran, if not Iran, some proxy war with all of them. So yeah, that's, that's me. It does feel like if anything, it feels like America has at least learned a slight lesson from the Iraq war. And that's maybe one thing that we can be hopeful for in the future. 
So, Possibly, yeah. With that, guys, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. We want to wish you uh, a very great night. And remember to check us out at Entry Level Left on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks so much. Thanks.